ASI Season 4, Episode 21, Figuring It Out. Divulgence to Declaration, Part 3. Nothing here to see, just a kill on me, trying to cuss and see, trying to figure it out. Season 4, Episode 21. Nothing better to do when I'm stuck on you, I'm still I'm here trying to figure it out. ASI 247.org. Getting hard to sleep, blood is in my dreams, love is killing me, trying to figure it out. Nothing better to do when I'm stuck on you, I'm still in here trying to figure it out. So... That is Royal Blood. Love that band from the UK over there. Last few shows, been talking about this Ashley Madison uh, case in the news and tying it in with uh, some emails I received. Been doing some study research talking about codependency, which led to some revealing emails about how we view our spouses in a marriage. Once the the honeymoon is over, so to speak, right? What causes something like um, a, a person who's married to go off and, and join an Ashley Madison-type website? In the last episode, I divulged some of my own story and what the declaration after that damage, after that exposure, after having my um, dark secrets exposed in the light... Uh, That was a confession that I did. Yes, I had been caught numerous times with my compulsive porn habit, but on the last episode, uh, I had an email from a listener that I I talked about um, what that looked like, right? From my own perspective. And that's in the last show, uh, if you want to check that out. My name is Russ Shaw. uh, Russ at ASI247.org is my email address. The at symbol... Russ Shaw, all one word. Yes, that's three S's. That's the Twitter handle. ASI247.org. You click on the music tab. That's where the bumper music I play on the show is located. Um, If you go to the Facebook page for this here website, and it's not like Attitudes of Sexual Integrity, right? That's not the name of the group. It's just Meet Russ Shaw. It's just my name. All right, so there's that. I think, again, it's kind of the fear of being exposed is why not a lot of people like the page, which I'm I, I'm not, right? Like, I'm totally confident and content in my 57 likes on, their, on the Facebook page. This show has been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times, um, approaching half a million, and it's funny how there's 57 likes uh, d- d- that I can take pride in, right? I, I love that. Uh, it's cool. I'm not Mr. Oh, look how many Twitter followers I have. Like, I'm not that guy. So, uh, anyway, I'm totally content with my not being social media famous, right, for this. Um, just so your friends aren't I don't know. <laughs> right. Oh, Bob is in a, a sexual compulsion uh, group. That's interesting, right? So, uh, yeah, it's just meet Russ Shaw, the Facebook page, and I'm posting a lot of these news stories and uh, some of the stuff that has hit me and, and some of the things that I place my hope in are on there as well. 
ASI247.org. Approaching 10 years now of doing this podcast, and why do I keep it going? Why do I pick up the mic and continue this thing? Because I felt like this, this this Ashley Madison thing, reading some of these stories, man, I've been there. I'm like, oh my God, I felt like that guy. I felt like this. This song, Behind My Eyes and the Aloneness of It, I get this soul-crushing feeling, the heart-level lament that's in this song. It's part of my scars, etched in my past, and I know that feeling more than most of you know. No one knows what it's like To be the bad man To be the sad man Behind blue eyes And no one knows what it's like To be hated To be faded Telling only lies But my dreams They aren't as empty As my conscience seems to be That song is originally by The Who, covered by Limp Biscuit. there. I think that's one of the biggest trap kind of lies that we believe is that we're all alone in this and no one else has felt like this and that, you know, I'm just the bad one going through this and other people don't know. And, and if there's any positive about the Ashley Madison story is that there's so many lives affected. I mean, 37 million people is a huge number. Reminds me of a quote by a modern-day artist and philosopher named Jay-Z, who said that men lie, women lie, numbers don't lie. On the website, I've been posting some of these news stories that have come out, and there's been more progression since the last uh, posted show that I put up. Uh, You know, first it was a few people had been exposed, and now the hackers have just poured out this huge list of people. um, And that's all been exposed online, talking about having folks' dark secrets uh, exposed there in the light and what that looks like right the after effect of that bomb going off right what is that i heard one talk radio guy say that this is one of those news stories that keeps on giving um because there's so much right to be reported about the people and the lives that have been that have taken, uh, you know, drastic turns in some cases. So I wanted to talk about today the three things um, that you shouldn't do, should do, shouldn't do if you're on the Ashley Madison list. Like emotional reactions have us go off in certain directions. So that's what I wanted to talk about today because I do know how this feels. 
I was owned by sexual addiction, compulsion, bad habits, whatever you want to call it, for many years, and now I am a publicly self-exposed, confessing former adulterer, admitting to my own past folly in thinking that I thought that I would find excitement or life in treating sex in a casual way, you know, like playing tennis with someone. And today, I'm not afraid to talk about my sin, past, present, and future, and to admit that I I didn't have a real good bead on what the definition of love and freedom were. And I'm here to say that there's hope, all right? There is hope. And hopefully for some of you, I can break that jar of shame and aloneness through my own story. Maybe I can help you see I do know how it feels, all right? And again, this isn't just about Ashley Madison, all right? This is about um, people who are leading separate secret lives. Uh, that was me for a period, all right? I, I do this podcast because I know what it's like to feel like the bad man, all right? I know what it's like to sit behind my eyes with only me knowing what's going on in the badness, right? The the breaking bad of my own story and my own incremental emotional moral bankruptcy, adultery, my own infidelity, knowing that that's what I did and do even at that time. Like being aware of the compulsiveness of it and knowing that I wasn't going to be able to stop on my own and and living this extreme weird lifestyle uh, just felt like a, a weird sense of survival. I know what it's like to feel like the bad man, trapped, without hope, feeling like things aren't going to change. This is who I am and this vampire-like identity. I've been there. I've felt that, all right? Um, so, so that's why I do what I do here. Um, I, I've seen freedom from this, and I've walking in the light and, and not having these secrets that are, you know, might bounce out of the closet. I could imagine with the smartphones today, you know, part of me having some inner tremor go off if my wife picked up my smartphone when she went through my computer history stuff like that being free from that anxiety alone it's life giving all right uh, the, the the double life and the secrets and the that was like a cancer that was growing in the dark like a tumor i talked about on the last podcast just gonna stand there and watch me burn well, that's all right because i like the way it hurts just gonna stand I can't tell you what it really is, I can only tell you what it feels like And right now it's a steel knife in my windpipe I can't breathe but I still fight, well I can fight As long as the wrong feels right, it's like I'm in flight High off a law, drunk from my hate, it's like I'm huffing pain I love her the more I suffer, I suffocate Right before I'm about to drown, she was such a taste Me, she fucking hates me, and I love it, wait Where you going? I'm leaving you No you ain't come back, we're running right back Here we go again, it's so insane when it's going good, it's going great I'm Superman with the wind in his 
So yes, ASI247.org, um, donations if you'd like to give to help uh, move this story forward so that other folks' lives, maybe um, ears can be reached and, and, it, and their story doesn't have to end like that song by Eminem and Rihanna does. Uh, so anyway, so here we go. Three things uh, you should do, shouldn't do, if you're on the Ashley Madison list. Uh, the first one is denial, all right? I mean, when this thing came out, one of the stories I read, like as soon as those names hit the Internet, um, this woman in the U.K., higher up, uh, cushy job in the Ministry of Defense, she um, immediately came out and said, hey, I'm on the list, All right? I, I, here, here I am. I, just confession right there. She owned it. I'm on the list. And, yeah, with her position, she could have been blackmailed. Um, it, it would have been a big mess. So she just, you know, like ripping the Band-Aid off all at once. A married woman, family. She said she's on the list. I don't know how her story's going forward. I imagine she's had to resign. Um, but there's that. I mean, that's one really... It's just, that's what she did. That's good, all right? Own it. She didn't hide. She owned it. And I know it's easy to say that, right? Doing it, however, is incredibly difficult and I couldn't imagine what it must have been like for that woman to to just you know okay yeah I'm on the list putting her job at jeopardy putting her marriage at jeopardy but really it's what it is is bigger than her isn't it there was a police chief in Texas in San Antonio who uh, was on the list ended up committing suicide um, and I'll be honest man there's times where it hurt so bad that that was a, an option that I thought about and I'm not gonna lie um, rather than confess rather than get caught man I, I, I thought about it and almost did it listen suicide is a short-term solution to a long-term problem all right it's your identity is deeper than your sins, all right? We all sin. We all do. And I can tell you now, looking back, that the best day of my life is when I, um, I threw open the doors and said, here's my secrets. Uh, it's, it's, there's a revealing of that that happens. Man, I remember sitting in my car and, and almost pushing down on the gas pedal, windows rolled down, going to drive into the port of Tacoma, uh, right in the water there. No one was around. No one would have found me till the next morning. I would have made it look like an accident. Man, that went through my head. I almost did that. It's like I had the Holy Spirit or, or something just in the back of my my spirit said, just give it one more day, all right? One more day. See what happens tomorrow. And today I do that. That's something I was reminded of yesterday, is that, you know, even today, I'm living my life in 24-hour increments, you know? 
It's that one day at a time is what they tell us, right? That's that thing from recovery. It's, it's deeper than that. And Jesus said, tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. That's very true. And living my life in 24-hour increments, come what may, is a lot better way to live, man. Listen, it's in these moments that you realize who you're going to be, right? What kind of ripple effect you're going to affect on this earth. How you handle your sin being exposed and how that will make a ripple effect on others. Again, that's why I'm a Christian. That's why I've landed in this worldview of Christianity. Because we don't, we don't, you know, earn God's love. God, we're children. God loves us like that. Um, this is not you on some crucible trying to score the touchdown, and then God will love you and approve of you. And that's that's not how your relationship with the creator of the universe and the lover of your soul works all right the grace of god is bigger than you are it's bigger than i am and it's beautiful and and that message that ripple effect that part of your being will be a beautiful redemption story if you let it all right and I've had people, you know, over the years, it's it's much easier to, to scrutinize another person's worldview than to take a step back, look at your own worldview, and say, how did I land here, right? Like, wh- what have I become was one of the questions I had asked myself. And when you're exposed in the light, that question becomes louder. It's like through a megaphone in your face. What have I become? For me, I had become someone who placed my faith and my hope and my identity and my sense of adventure and right sense of uh, am I attractive? Am I lovely? Am I right worth worthy of love or or do I still have it? Right? Can I attract someone of the opposite sex? Still, kind of these weird things. That that's what I'd become. I'd put my faith in these things, and they gave me some kind of you know, little nuggets of short-term happiness, right? And and it was functional for a little while. I mean, that's why we continue to do these things, you know, right? Because we get something out of it. I remember um, I heard a guy talking about, right, purity. And when we're doing sin, sexual sin, sexual immorality, to use that word, we're like drinking out of the toilet, you know? And for some of us, um, sometimes it, drinking out of the toilet is still wet, right? It's still water. Or else, why would we do it, right? I mean, who would want to drink out of the toilet? It's gross. It's, it's cold. It, it quenches thirst for a little while. But when it all got exposed in the light, when all my little secrets that I thought were just going to be secrets forever and I'd take them to my grave or whatever... When somebody opened up my personal backpack cooler and found little jars of toilet water, um, I'm speaking metaphorically, of course, but listen, it felt just about that gross. You know, having that kind of thing exposed in the light, when all of that grossness was, you know, look what Russ did, is doing. When that came out, I tended to want to think the worst, all right? 
And so we're at number two. Number two is don't think the worst. Don't give in to hopelessness. Just like water rolls downhill, um, you're going to be tempted to want to think the worst, to, to have these cascading emotions and thoughts of doom, of dread. All right? I've been there too. And listen, lovelessly thinking the worst, right? The way you love, even after this thing's been exposed, the way you love from here on out, it's going to matter to those that call you father, husband, brother, son, right? Ladies, those that call you mother, sister, um, daughter, friend, man, try not to let yourself think the worst, all right? Because that's going to be a tempting constantly. Like, you know, I talk about the thoughts of old porno movies or, you know, the the wanting to drink in an image for too long of a, the opposite sex, right? These things, these, these disciplines of the mind, um, that was one that I had to keep pushing out some of those just awful, fearful thoughts. And the voice, you know, that, that those thoughts came from was something I had to address as well. But it was, you know, hey, once people find out who you are, no one's going to love you and you should kill yourself. I mean, that kind of thing. Those kinds of voices were in my head. You're not worth anything. You're not worthy of anything. It's hopeless, right? Once an addict, always an addict. These voices from my past, these voices in my head. And that's just not true, all right? There is evil in this world. There is demonic dark forces that are trying to keep you in that believing those lies and they are lies they're demonic lies from hell all right and the best way to fight those lies is truth and i've found that scripture is true now someone told me years ago that scripture is true and i started to question that because of some of those voices you know and because of some of the dissonance that just wasn't being solved by well-meaning religious people because for me some guy just preaching and you know in those times there's some dudes just transparency wasn't real big with a lot of these cats when when I was growing up teaching the bible but when you open that book when you actually open the book and read the book I could trust that more than I could trust the dude's instruction or interpretation of those words. Something mysterious, dare I say magical, happens when we open the book and start reading. Truth spills out. Lamentations chapter 3, uh, verses 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And over time, through my relationship with God, not through just those being some words that came out of a fortune cookie or something, but the truth of those words through my relationship with Christ, in Christ, through Christ. It's just, I've seen it as true and trustworthy. Your human life is precious to God. And my prayer for you is you would find some solace 
and some solitude and talk to Christ, talk to God in repentance, face on the ground, man, in prayer and just, I'm sorry, right? David said in the Psalm, Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned when he was busted, when he was outed in his adultery. The Psalms were something that really helped me reading through the Psalms when those feelings and that energy of thinking the worst started to cloud over me. And listen, the Psalms aren't all positive thinking, right, songs and poems, okay? They are a man um, just emotionally reeling in his relationship with God and totally placing his hope in him, right? I mean, there's, there's just some beautiful psalms that deal with this issue right here. Being exposed, um, feeling like you've hurt God, let God down, um, trying to, realizing that he's in a relationship with God, that God isn't this distant, voiceless, emotionless deity. And that's the third one when we breaking down the list here, getting to the end of it is realizing that you're not alone. All right. And I think that's fairly obvious when it comes to just looking at the numbers again, right? The heart level feeling, right? Like that behind blue eyes song. The truth is you're not alone. And there are groups you can go to. There's people you can talk to. There is vulnerable people who aren't afraid to expose their own sins in the light. If you're on the list and you haven't told anyone, russ at asi247.org, you can tell me. It's another soul that knows, and then I pray that you could, you know, expand that net a little farther. So yeah, to re-emphasize, you're not all alone. And I think that's the part of codependency that's toxic in relationship, is that I was... I felt physically close to my wife and and faking and lying and these were ways I could hide my vulnerable heart but still be physically close to my wife, come home from work, see her, be with her. But if she knew me, right, that was the demonic lie inside that I was all alone and that if anybody knew that part of me, that's, that's where it got dark. Stand.
My addiction was in full bloom, all right? Just in survival mode, kind of working day to day. And I had this thing on the side, right? This double life that I was living, you know, just just as a human being, trying to be on a heart level. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what it meant to be me. I heard somebody say, I believe it was... Uh, Stephen Colbert, of all people, in this interview, talking about how difficult it is just to exist as a human being. And I think that's part of what he's touching on there. Like there's a there's a safe part of us that we sense and know, that spiritual part of us that can get lost. And we start to lose who we are. We start to forget about who we are is a unique creation of God and, and as an individual so much of American Christianity seems to be scared of talking about the self right? Like I've noticed that and in my recovery you know even almost feeling sort of guilty to think about think on myself like who am I you know and it just it just fed that kind of disdain for myself that self-hate could I call it that it's not that I hated myself I I, I guess that somewhere down deep you know it's that part of us that it's not it's okay to think on yourself that God loves that part of you that he created that's James um, chapter 4 verse 5 or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us but he gives more grace therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded be wrecked 
and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I mean, that's the reality of the affliction when we've done damage. And it's also not this prideful kind of positive thinking, always thinking on things, you know, interpreting that other piece of scripture, right? Whatever things are beautiful and lovely and awesome, just think on those things. Taking Philippians 4, 8 out of context in its, right, it, talking about suffering. No, sometimes we have to mourn the damage we've done. And listen, it's not like, shame on you, you drunk. That's why I talk about, you know, alcohol, for example. When you blame alcohol, for example, for drunkenness, instead of the honest theological framework of repenting of the sin of drunkenness. See, it's easier to say, oh, well, I'm an alcoholic. I have no choice. I was born with a gene, right? And the science does point to this impulse control genetically. But as far as alcoholism is concerned, listen, um, you're a sinner who gets drunk, all right? It's less about alcohol has some magical power over you where if you, you know, you squirt a banaca or have some sugar-free gum that has alcohol in it, you're going to fly off the rails and go, you know, divorce your wife and buy a red Corvette and run to Vegas. Like, it's just not, it doesn't have that kind of power. You're a sinner. That's the problem. That's the main problem. And when we get away from that, we scapegoat. And in the short term, it's functional because it works until you find something else to be addicted to, right? So this whole uh, I'm an alcoholic identity thing, I don't think that's helping you long term. See, it's not the alcohol's problem. It's our sinful, fleshy earth suit and its nature. It's not out there. Look in the mirror. I have this fleshy, selfish nature that just wants to consume and be all about me and follow my impulses. That's the problem, not alcohol. Now, if you don't drink, then don't drink, but don't blame alcohol that we have an impulse problem, that we have a fleshy nature and a pride and a selfishness problem, all right? Alcohol is not the problem for the alcoholic. The alcoholic is the problem. Man, um, I'll be just brutally honest with you. I still have a real hard time with people sitting around going, I'm an addict. That's not your true identity deep down. I think it's good to admit, what, be honest about where you're at at that moment in time, but your whole identity throughout your entire life is not alcoholic. Sex addict. Sinner? Yes. Afflicted? Yeah. Shopaholic? Man, you call yourself that, you're going to believe it. You're going to walk in it. Sinner, we need God. We need Jesus. And he's our savior. Not alcohol, not gambling, not shopping, not another orgasm. And maybe that's part of this disdain you hear in atheists and agnostics who say that Christianity, you know, it starts with we're broken or we're sick, right? We're sick, we're afflicted. 
Um, and they don't like that. And maybe it has to do with some of that AA type of I'm an addict thinking. Um, but the truth is, uh, it's it's healthy and it's reality to say that we are, we're, we're, we're savior searching, all right? Constantly throughout our lives, we're looking for something to fill us. You know, the Bible uses these metaphors of, of a, an empty vessel looking to be filled, right? Are we, are we not doing that? Are we perfect creatures, right? Isn't that part of what messes us up as we're looking for something to fill us, that we're thirsty to be filled? We're needy. We're thirsty. We're thirsty for meaning and truth and purpose. It's just so much easier to demonize the object, scapegoat it, make it the problem, then I don't have to deal with my sin or the fact that I'm a sinner, right? I don't have to repent. It's that thing's problem. It's the power it has over me. If you're an alcoholic, then you can demonize alcohol. If you're a sex addict, you can demonize Kim Kardashian. I, I don't know, right? But we demonize the thing that that, that that so has the the power to own us, don't we? Instead of saying it's my issue, it's my problem, we demonize it. And yes, if it's a tempting thing for you to drink, if you know that if you do drink, you will get drunk. If beers are like potato chips for you, you can't have just one, you have to have 18, then there may be a problem, all right? Again, it's not a sin to be tempted, but it is a sin to give in to temptation. This is a different kind of language. If we demonize alcohol, then we're a victim and we have no choice. But when drunkenness is the sin and not consuming alcohol, because it's nowhere in the Bible does it say consuming alcohol is a sin. It doesn't say that. It's not in there. It says drunkenness is a sin. I'm using alcohol as, a, as an example. Like if I have a just a, a taste, if I see an image, it's a trigger. No, it's a temptation. That's different. It's not a sin to be tempted. It is, however, a sin to bite the hook and bite down on the temptation. All of the things to feed our impulses, um, right? We don't cover our women in a burqa. All right. Yes, it's hard out there culturally. It's difficult to be a man in this hypersexualized culture. But listen, we're the ones that are feeding off it. We're the ones giving ourselves over to it. And I pray that we don't fall into the worldly, prideful, victim kind of trap that it's sin is out there. All right. It's in me. The reality is there's a scared little boy in me that's looking for some kind of shelter. That's looking for something to save him from the impending doom, the emotional pain, or just that sinking feeling that life is going by too quickly without us experiencing it or having the ability to be in it, right? And I think the label alcoholic or sex addict for example, it can become an energy that's less about boasting in our weaknesses and more about gazing at our navels. Pride, ego, right? It's, it's pride in brokenness, as I used to call it. 
And it's part of our flesh, and it's keeping that childlike spirit in that cold place where he's not able to run, where he's not able to come out in the light, right? See, one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control, not being afraid of ourselves. Man, when I was just so stuck and caught up in this thing, I was afraid of myself, and that little guy in me, right, that spirit, that good, pure part of me was afraid to come out, was afraid to see the light of day. I just pray there can be a day where we stop, where we advance past this, you know, addiction of choice labeling and realize that it's really about self-control and impulse control, right? The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, love, peace, patience, kindness. It's Galatians 5.23, against such things there is no law, right? When our want-tos change, when our spirit changes, it starts to become the way of our being. But at my core, and at my center, and at the, the good creation spirit part that God is is working on and molding like the potter and the clay in that part. Once we're born again, to use that metaphor, that word, it's it's a different rebirthing of something. So we sort of feel like two different people inside. Not that we're schizophrenic or something like that, but we have this flesh body that we carry around. I've talked about that. See, it's that self that I'm not talking about, you know, exalting or your ego, you know. There's a difference between pride and ego. Part of our fleshy nature likes to make much of ourselves, even if it is in the good stuff and the good things we're doing. And, and that's okay, but if that's all that we expose others in the world to, they're not going to see how we're born again. They're not going to see how we are living for love. They're not going to see the new um, energy of wanting to live like this song here so beautifully points out. this thing isn't psychological or intellectual you know that that spirit of I care a lot somehow now celebrating and honoring the good creation that you are in your childlike faith speaking of attitude that is an attitude of rebirth 
And again, it's not that we're shadowed and we wear this cloak of guilt and shame, have a hard time, this compulsive sexual behavior, it just, it's, it's, it's clouded in shame. But that's not who you are. See, because conformity to just religion, right, or that kind of shame-based sort of don't think on yourself because that's selfish kind of thinking, it's really conforming to shame. Not knowing the difference between the spirit and the flesh. Because we all conform in one way or another, right? If you hang around a certain group of people long enough, you will conform and be more like those people. If you, you know, picking up a language, they say the best way to learn like Spanish is to go live in a town in Mexico where nobody speaks English if you're, you know, you know English, right? The more you're around it, the more you're submerged in it, you start to conform to it. That's why, you know, I talk about the worldliness of some religious types that never talk about their struggles, that never share their, their inner conflicts. You know, those are the, the neat religious types, and it's hard to trust them because you don't know them. It's easier to trust people who aren't afraid to, right, as Paul says, I'll boast in my weakness, you know. Talk about their sin, right? Their their stuff, the parts where they struggle and fail. And hanging around, being around godly men and women, it, it'll change you, man. It reminds me of uh, Colossians uh, chapter 3 is conforming to our spiritual heart in Christ. Um, this is uh, This is verse 12. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called one body. And be thankful, right? There's that gratitude that's so important. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I love that. Man, that's community. There's nothing wrong with understanding the self and our childlike nature and it's okay to be that kid in front of other people there's safe places where you can do that somewhere that tender spirit of the guy that my wife married right that that part of your relationship when the the two kids in you are able to just be together and enjoy each other and somehow along the way it's not that I lost that part of me but that part of me got locked away somewhere you know reminds me of that song by Evanescence you know my my spirit is sleeping somewhere cold I felt like that I mean it's like the toughest guys are just little boys inside have you heard that it's very true emotionally we're all kids and there's a difference between being childish and being childlike. 
I, I, I would tell myself, oh, just grow up, you know. Letting myself be myself, all right, to a certain degree, in my heart of hearts, the, the child that is you, right? I'm not going to talk about the whole inner child thing. That's not what I'm talking about. But emotionally, we all are, we all have different personalities. We're all created in different ways. And we are different from our spouse. We're a different human being. Um, the listener in this email talks a lot about recovery and a lot of his relationships seem to be just birthed out of recovery. And uh, another thing I would ask is, do you have friends, right? Like, what do your friendships look like? Can you just go out with a buddy? And I know in, in the sense of betrayal, that's difficult. But it, that's another thing that you have to have the courage to do. You're asking me to stir up more conflict, Russ, by going out with friends? Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Because you having, you know, it's like Craig Gross talked about with accountability partners in his book, Open. These folks, when they're your friends, right? When you, and Christian, having Christian friends, it's different because you can let those people have a, I mean, it's like the matrix, right? They know that this world isn't all that there is. So that they're willing to talk about those deeper issues of faith, of, of hope, of heart level moving forward, right? Of pursuing holiness, you know? And again, I keep reminding folks of that, but I think it's really important to find not neat religious people, right? But people who are willing to talk about matters of faith. Some people have criticized me for talking about, you know, secular movies and the music that I play on the show. But sometimes when we talk about some of those stories, we get beyond some of those, you know, just behave this way or outward obedience, right? See, godly men and women are more able to deal with the reality that happens in life and in life stories and the complexities of it in culture today than religious people are, all right? There's a big difference between godly men and women and neat, nice religious people. And this is another thing about myself and realizing my own ability to be a rock and roll Pharisee. Right, this guy Larry Osborne wrote a book called Accidental Pharisee, and and that's you know that's part of that. Like, I was very easy to offend, and that's part of being around people. Like, people will offend you. All right, in some aspects, people will hurt you. So there is a sort of you know again, it's like that that immune system. We're we're building an immune system the more we're around people. This is part of my geeking out on social psychology, you know, years later learning part of my problem with social anxiety or just my defensiveness all the time, right? Always had my guard up around people. Part of it was due to a lack of trust. Um, People bug me, right? Um, And part of it was laziness. I'll just be honest, you know, having friends takes work. Uh, just like that cheesy line, I, I love that, that somebody said years ago, um, what's the best vitamin for making new friends? Be one, right? <laughs> See, and, and that takes effort. It takes effort to get out, out of the house and actually interact with other people. 
Um, it's like watering a plant. Relationships are like that. Um, we get up, we cultivate, we give the plant food, we give the plant water. Without that, the plant dies. And listen, as a younger man, I was really in the place where I didn't give a crap if the plant died, you know? And then learning that I wasn't alone in feeling that way or reacting that way, that it wasn't just me, right? Um, heterosexual women have a a better time, an easier time at having relationships, having friends, having a kind of sisterhood, right? It's not shallow. That's, that's you know, I got you. I'm there for you. We're friends. We have that kind of relationship. Men, however, do not to the point where it's affecting our mental health. I listened to a bunch of these lectures on social psychology at Berkeley, and they talked about a sociological concept known as immune neglect, right? That we would, uh, we would neglect our own psychological, emotional, immune system. And men are doing this way more than women are. And that's why I believe that there's so much issues, especially with young men behaving badly in culture. And part of it's because we don't have friends. Um, we may have Guys, we call our friends, but when it comes to sharing our heart, sharing our emotional well-being, right? These aren't just girly things, all right? wanted to read you some of this article that's even calling it a, a crisis among American men, uh, especially. This is uh, from Salon.com, news magazine. I'm not going to read the whole article, but I've, I've picked out some pieces of it that are really good. I'll have, again, I'll have a, a link to this. Uh, I'll be posting it on the Facebook page. Um, of all people in America, adult white heterosexual men have the fewest friends. Moreover, the friendships they have, if they're with other men, provide less emotional support and involve lower levels of self-disclosure and trust than other types of friendships. When men get together, they're more likely to do stuff than have conversation. Friendship scholar Gary Grief calls these shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder friendships, contrasting them as to the face-to-face -face friendships that many women enjoy. If a man does have a confidant, three-quarters of the time it's a woman, and there's good chance that she's his wife or girlfriend. When I first began researching this topic, I thought, surely this is too stereotypical to be true. Or if it's true, I wondered, perhaps the research is biased in favor of female-type friendships. In other words, maybe we're measuring the male friendships with a female yardstick. <laughs> I love that. It's possible that men don't want as many of the same kinds of friendships as women. But they do. And... and I, this is me. I'm entering in here. Um, man, this is so much of sexual addiction. Man, it is It is so linked to intimacy, to being known, to being naked, not just in your physical body, but in your spirit and your needs and what you... Um, anyway, again, we're talking about mental, emotional, spiritual health, brotherhood. Anyhow. Going, continuing on. When asked about what they desire from their friendships, men are 
just as likely as women to say that they want intimacy. And just like women, their satisfaction with their friendships is strongly correlated with the level of self-disclosure. Moreover, when asked to describe what it means what they mean by intimacy, men say the same thing as women. Emotional emotional support, disclosure, and having someone to take care of them. Men desire the same level and type of intimacy in their friendships, their same-sex friendships, as women. But they aren't getting it. This is something I've seen being involved in recovery groups over the years. Like, most men won't admit that normally, right? Like it, it, even with your wives, right, guys or ladies, if you have a man in your house who's like, if you ask him about his intimate relational friendships and what he desires about them, most guys aren't going to just talk about that with with anybody. You know, some of these behind the counter kind of glimpses that I've got to see into other people's lives and also letting them into my own lives. I've seen this. I've seen guys uh, struggle with and not even knowing how to do it or even thinking it's possible, you know, to have these kinds of of real friendships. Uh, It continues on. In an effort to understand why men's friendships are less intimate than women's, uh, psychologist Nobel Way interviewed boys about their friendships in each year of high school. She found that younger boys spoke eloquently about their love for and dependence on their male friends. In fact, research shows that boys are just as likely as girls to disclose personal feelings to their same-sex friends and are just as talented at being able to sense their friends' emotional states. But at about the range age of 15 to 16, right at the same age, the suicide rate for boys increases to four times the range of girls. Boys start reporting that they don't have friends and don't need them. Because Wei interviewed young men across each year of high school, she was able to document this shift. One boy, Justin, in his first year was about 15. Um, I'm not going to read you this part, but basically at 15, I'll read it to you. (laughs) I have to. It's it's, it's good. Um, This is Justin, age 15. Uh, My best friend and I love each other. That is it. You have this thing that is deep, so deep it is within you. You can't explain it. It's just the thing that you know that person is that person. I guess in life sometimes two people can really, really understand each other and really have trust, respect for each other. Trust and respect for each other. Um, In his senior year, however, however, uh, this is the same guy in his senior year um, uh, talking about friendships. My friend and I, we mostly joke around. It's not like anything serious or whatever. I don't talk about serious stuff. I don't talk to nobody. I don't share my feelings really. Not I'm not that kind of person or whatever. It's just something I don't do. She goes on to explain uh, that there's, you know, this kind of guy culture that we're supposed to be men, that you're just supposed to, you know, be tough, be cool, uh, you know, uh, bolster this outside persona. Uh, just 
talking about how um, sensing your male friend's emotional status, you can be judged as being gay, right? What are you, gay? You know, and there's such a touchy subject in that range for whatever reason that we don't want to be seen as, you know, gay. Or then, you know, if you look at the culture today, guys start to judge themselves. Like, you start to think, maybe I'm gay because I care about deeper friendships than most of my heterosexual friends. And it's just, it's just a social norm. It's just part of our sick status um, sociologically here in the States, man. It's, it's, it's not good. It's not healthy. And I really think a big part of this is driven by the porn culture, you know? Like, it's almost a social norm to objectify women and to, you know, just talk about their bodies, not their hearts, not their minds, when we can make a, a female person like a thing, you know, like a, like a car or a piece of property, then we start to diminish our own ability to be emotional, caring individuals. Doing some study on this, you know, talking about young men who are addicted to pornography having this social anxiety. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that just talking to a female had their minds in this dark place of thinking about them naked, you know, or whatever, and, and not being able to, to even hear what's going on in their heart and their mind. So they would isolate. So they would spend way too much time alone as a way to escape that foreign kind of shame-filled vampire-like odd feeling inside them. And I heard this story come out a while back about uh, how isolation is not just bad for mental health, but physical health as well. And I believe that's uh, Lisa Wade, who wrote this article, is expanding on some of this research. Uh, she ends the, and, and there's a lot more to it that I haven't read. So again, uh, salon.com. If you go, again, if you go to the website, asi247.org, click on the Facebook page, and I have all this information uh, right there on the on the page. She closes the article with this. Finally, because men often don't have a lot of practice in being a good friend. Uh, that's me, by the way. I'm, I've told some of my friends I'm kind of a crappy friend, right? Like, I'm doing the best I can. I'm learning. I'm growing. But, man, I'm not the best friend. I'll just be honest. I wish I was a better friend. I want to be a better friend. But uh, that's why I'm addressing some of this today. I do believe I can be a vastly better friend than I was um, and part of that is spending time with guys in recovery groups talking about deeper stuff. Uh, anyway, she goes on. Men who value friendships with other men may have to teach others how to be friends. They may have to model friendships for other men or be understanding with their friends when they fail them and respond with greater disclosure instead of anger or dismissal. Or, yeah, man, that's something I've had to learn is, you know, when a friend isn't there for me or whatever, sometimes I, I just don't talk to them anymore. I've done that in the past, and, and that's not healthy. It's just, you know, I, it's okay to disagree with people. You can be friends with people you disagree with, right? It, it, but it's that emotional stuff that that we can, you know, talk about that most 
most guys don't do well. Um, it hurt my feelings when you didn't call or see how my surgery went. She's using this example in this you know closed quote thing. Um, this calls on great emotional reserves, but it's worth it, she says. Having a friend to whom you can disclose your feelings is a major determinant of well-being. People with friends are healthier. They're less likely to get common colds, to develop fatal congenital disease, to develop physical impairments or reductions in brain function as they age. People with friends are more likely to survive the death of a spouse without any permanent loss of vitality. Medical doctor Dean Orish explains, I am not aware of any other factor, not diet, not smoking, not exercise, not stress, not genetics, not drugs, not surgery, that has a greater impact on our incidences of illness and chance of premature death. That's huge. Um, depending on which research you consult, people with friends have a 22 to 60% lower chance of dying over a 10-year period. People with friends are happier, too. Friendship is correlated with a more joyful life. If a person is depressed, having a friend to interact with them is regularly is as effective as the treating of depression with antidepressants or therapy. In old age, friends are more important than grandchildren for the maintaining of morale. Uh, according to sociologist Rebecca Adams, friendship is more strongly correlated with what happens than relationships with a spouse, children, parent, or siblings. Guys, it's time. Man up and make some friends. We can't do it for you. And we're not saying it's easy, but it's every reason in the world to make friendships a priority. I love that. That's again from salon.com. That is uh, Lisa Wade. And uh, I'll have a link to that, like I said before. But uh, this is something that I had to, part of it was my own shame. Um, and part of it was keeping my wife safe. And I had friendships. And my, my situation is extreme, all right? When my wife and I started dating, started hanging out, um, moved in together, all right? I, I did that. I was, I was that guy. I didn't, I didn't do the Christian thing and get married first. We were shacking up, okay? But when I had my friends over, here's, here's one of the situations with my friends early on. Um, some of my friends came over. I hadn't seen them in a while. We were hanging out for a while, you know, watching TV, drinking beers, just hanging out. And then two of my friends locked themselves in the bathroom and started doing drugs, right? And my wife got uh, scared, right? Like, that's something she's never been around. Um, people who are doing shooting up in the bathroom or smoking crack and outside these these were the people that I was friends with all right not such a healthy social group as far as my well-being and spiritual maturity we can say right but I also wanted to to bring up the fact that um, some hardcore religious people can be just as unhealthy as my friends who were, you know, shooting up in the bathroom. And listen, one thing I did appreciate about that crowd and, and being friends with some of those folks was that they were a lot less likely to fake it. 
Like you knew what you were getting with with those cats, you know. And when it comes to being involved in a church or a religious group, sometimes you can go months before you find out where you stand in the hierarchy of of that place. And I've heard these stories. I mean, bullying is is something that happens in spiritual community and how we handle it is so incredibly important. Um, but it, it can be like a gangster kind of a, a atmosphere. I've talked to people who have felt like that. But some religious people are just mean. All right? That's, that's Jesus' biggest social issue when he walked this earth, was that the, he, he took issue with the religious elites. All right? It wasn't the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. Again, let's make that perfectly clear bullies, um, mean people who were supposed to know the Bible, know the scriptures, know the spiritual journey, and just use their power to lord over others. So if you've been in some of those toxic kind of religious environments, I can see how your spouse letting you have friends can, can be scary. And listen, when it comes to human beings, relationships, these stories are complicated. And again, in the arts, this, these stories, they tend to get past our watchful dragons. And they have us um, dealing with some of the questions that are hard to answer when it comes to relationships and stuff like that. So again, it not having need to, some of you need to maybe leave the church you're at or find another denomination. I don't know. That's what I loved about Eddie Caparici's story. Um, he, Christian counselor that was on, talked about going from one denomination kind of church to another and having a radical transformation in his faith walk, his faith journey, just because he'd seen things differently, met people whose hearts were different. And that's something Jim Henderson's book helped me see. Like, a lot of people want to say that one denomination is better than another, or that denomination is bad because they believe this. And really what it is, it's the people. And sometimes bullies get a hold of a certain kind of doctrine, and it's just not trustworthy. Or you can no longer, you're not safe enough to talk about what's actually real, Um and, and bullies do that. They try and contain. And, and some of you need to leave those kinds of churches, man. Because if you really like the people that you share life with, they start to become your friends, right? I'm still friends with a lot of folks at Mars Hill Church, and Mars Hill Church doesn't exist anymore. So that's what I'm talking about is getting those heart-level relationships starting to grow organically, right? Doing this with your spouse is so incredibly important, guys, or your girlfriend or boyfriend, right? When you go into these communities and you start to see how other couples live, you know, a lot of, a ton of marital disputes and, and just toxic ways of doing relationship, a lot of it can be cleared up when we start to see how others do relationship too. We start to ask maybe older people about their own lives and how their marriages work themselves out, you know? It's a lack of human interaction uh, that can cause a lot of this stuff. And listen, guys, 
if your wife doesn't want to go, ladies, if your husband doesn't want to go, you go. Just go. Don't ask for permission. Again, right? This is not doing what you're told. Love isn't doing what you're told. Love is um, growing organically so that you can love the other person better. All right? Your love partner, your spouse, that romantic one in your life. To love them better means that you need to be you. Not in a narcissistic, selfish kind of way, but in an organic, growing so you can nurture better kind of way. So again, I want to make this perfectly clear. You're going into a community of faith, not to find some religious bully to push you around and tell you what to do and how to live your life. But I'm talking about real, true friends that you can talk about your stuff with and not worry about, you know, having them throw the book at you, right? Bible thump you so to speak. You're walking together, right, in the pursuit of loving God and being open and honest about that deep love that we all have with our Father in Heaven as brothers and sisters. There's this beautiful part in the Bible, that piece of scripture that says that without the pursuit of holiness, no one will see the Lord. All right, Emphasis on pursuit. Um, it's very true. So having relationships with guys who you can just do life with, it's not all about, you know, you're sitting in a recovery meeting and, and divulging, you know, your soul or, or reading the Bible or something like that, but just going out and having a beer with a dude, just being friends, going fishing, camping, something like that. Um, these are ways that you start to grow in character with other men, guys. And for me to, you know, take that step away and and love her as an individual because she was so intertwined in who I was that I didn't know how to be me anymore. And it was destroying our relationship. It was causing me to either act... Because once I stopped with the secrets, my next, um, my next thing was sort of anger, right? passive-aggressive anger sometimes, you know, cutting little words, uh, trying to stay late at work sometimes. I, I would do things like that in the past, and I had to, you know, bring all of myself to her. And I'm still learning to do that because I, I, I'm... This is the insecurity in me, right? I'm learning to get comfortable with who Russ Shaw is. I hope that makes sense. So yeah, 10 years later, do I have it all figured out? No, no, I don't. But I'm not owned by my compulsion anymore. I don't have to lie to my wife anymore. I don't have secret accounts or passwords she doesn't know about. I'm not pretending to be anyone other than me and still learning what that looks like in relationship divulging my insecurities and my vulnerabilities and being transparent here, not easy. Um, but I can honestly tell you my declaration, from divulgence to declaration and um, putting a bow on this whole thing, right? Ten years after 
the big confession nine years after all of it right the battle is not ours it belongs to the lord um his glory shines through me this is my story i don't boast in my ability to be hyper disciplined i'm not all right i'm not mr varsity disciple all right i trust in the lord more and more and he gives me more and more grace and the glory goes to god not to me and it's less about conforming to some religious doctrinal you know authority but being loved by a father who's slow to anger abounds in steadfast love and knowing that Jesus is the hero of my story not myself Jesus is the hero of my wife's story not me and my ability to be awesome and if there's anything I've learned through this whole heart-wrenching process, it's that God's love is a feast of being, all right? That I can be in God's love. It is the one and only safe place in this scarred world. All right? I love you guys. I mean that sincerely. I've gone long again. Until next time. Sometimes I just want to start over Cause everything looks like a wreck And I need the courage to carry on Cause I can't see what's ahead And there are places I've wished I could be Battles I've wanted to win Dreams that have slipped through my hands I may never get back again Stay